As we get going this morning, I want to take a moment to thank Scott Wavern for preaching the word to us for the last couple of weeks. I firmly believe that our church is strengthened, that we are a healthier church when we have elders in our pulpit. And Scott did an incredible job, and so if you see him, thank him. By the way, if you're new to Calvary and perhaps aren't familiar with the biblical office of an elder, you would find it in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, Acts 5, Acts 20. I could give you 20 more references if you want. I point out all of that out so that you'd see that it is all over the New Testament. In fact, it's the office of the elder that gives us a concept for a pastor. That is not a word in the Bible, you may have noticed. And here at Calvary, I'm exceptionally thankful for the men that serve in this capacity. And I'm thankful for each one of them. Just wanted to get out that word. This morning, we are starting a series in the Old Testament book of Joshua. Over the last couple of years, I've been trying to get us into the Old Testament, as I strongly believe in teaching the entirety of God's Word, Old Testament and New. And as I've prayed through each series, I've earnestly felt the Lord leading us into every teaching series that we've walked into. And all cards on the table, our last series, the big words, looking at sanctification, was in part to set us up theologically to walk into the book of Joshua for the themes of purification and holiness and righteousness and sanctification will be predominant themes throughout the entire book. We have to have an understanding of this. You have to have some base level understanding that our God is holy and has called us to be holy. We'll develop more of those themes as we go. I've entitled this series, The Promised Land. Because if you're familiar with the Bible, you might remember that when God introduces Himself to Moses, He does so through a burning bush, and He tells Moses that He's going to use him to lead His people out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt and into the Promised Land. We find those words in Exodus 3, 7-9. through Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that, that to the land or to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Friends, the people of Israel were suffering. They were broken. They were tired. They were exhausted because they were slaves. They did not belong to themselves. They were an owned people. They were an abused people. And did you know that the Bible gives the same imagery to those that are under the yoke of sin? Jesus Himself will testify this in John 8, 34. This is what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And while believers in Jesus Christ still sin, we have been set free from that yoke of slavery 
Jesus says that two verses later. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The very picture of salvation, of you being set free from bondage, from being set free as a slave. Paul gives us the same picture in Romans 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Meaning that when you were in sin, when you were giving yourselves over to sin, you had no righteousness whatsoever. Verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Oh, the number of hours I spent trying to convince college students of the truth of that verse. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Oh, to look back on my life, the stupid sins I participated in that were totally fruitless, that ended in death. Paul makes that clean. What sin gets you is death. What slavery in Egypt was getting the Israelites was death. And when God freed His people, the Israelites, through the work of Moses, He freed them to something greater. He took them to the promised land. And when Jesus frees His people, those who would believe in Him, He takes them to somewhere greater. Paul continues in verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is, friends, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, and I don't mean you believe in Him like you believe in Santa Claus. I mean that you believe in Him as if you trust in Him absolutely with absolutely everything. That you believe that it's only by His death and His resurrection that your sins can be forgiven. That it's only in Him that you can have a restored relationship with the Heavenly Father. That it's only in Him that you can have eternal life. Friends, if you've believed in Him in this way, you're much like the Israelites who were freed from a slavery leading to death and called to enter in the promised land. For you've been freed from the slavery of sin and called into the abundant life. Paul says the fruit of which is sanctification. That it will lead to eternal life. But in the meantime, between this moment and that, in this moment, which Paul calls sanctification, the right now, between this moment and that time when you will stand before the Lord in eternity, what does that life look like? Warren Worsby, in his introduction to the commentary on the book of Joshua, wrote this. And this is going to help us frame our time in the book of Joshua. This is what Worsby writes. Too many Christians are in between in their spiritual lives. Between Egypt and Canaan. They've been delivered from the bondage of sin, but they have not yet, by faith, entered into the inheritance of rest and victory. 
how to enter and claim this inheritance is the theme of Joshua. What does it look like then for us to walk in rest in a true peace and in true victory over sin? That's the themes in the book of Joshua. That's where we're going to spend our next season digging in. Because Wordsby asserts that many of us are living in the wilderness. That we've been freed from the slavery of sin by the atoning work of Jesus Christ, but we've not entered into the land or into the life that God has for us. We stand at the precipice of the promised land, but we have not entered. And so we will enter into our study in the book of Joshua. Now, if you're an astute church attender, you might have noticed by your bulletin that we're beginning our series this week in 1 Corinthians 10. Not the book of Joshua. Why? By means of introduction, I want us to see from the onset that the New Testament validates our study of the Old Testament. Lest you should ever wonder or question why we're not just considering Jesus, we're not just considering Paul's explanation of the church, why are we looking at the Old Testament? I want us to see that the New Testament validates the Old Testament. That we really, really believe that the entirety of God's Word was given. And it was given to us to be profitable for our teaching, for our reproof, for our correction, and for our training in righteousness. So I'd encourage you to open a Bible to 1 Corinthians 10. If you don't have one, there's a Red Pew Bible sitting before you. And I've conveniently put the page numbers on the slides to make your life easier. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth a church that would have contained many Jewish people who would have come to know the Lord, many Jewish people who have been incredibly knowledgeable about the history of Israel, who would have known their Old Testament, and it would have been filled with many Gentiles who wouldn't have known anything. Greeks, Romans, any number of other people who would come into this church. And Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. Paul says, I want you to know. And he's not talking about Jesus or Peter or John. No, he wants them to understand their Old Testament. Watch this. This is what he says. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and in the sea, And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Paul illustrates for the church and illustrates for us here quickly the similarities between the church and the Israelites. Now as a bunch of Gentiles, we're not apt to pick up on some of these illustrations quickly. So I'll make it helpful for you. He points out five things. He says, you're under the clouds. They passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses. They drank spiritual, or they ate spiritual food. They drank spiritual drink. Let's talk about those five realities because they matter. They were under the clouds. 
If you know your Old Testament, you might remember the story that as the people were being led out of Egypt into the promised land, God provided a cloud for them to follow so that it would be evident, it would be obvious. It wasn't just Moses with a compass. It followed a cloud. It was symbolic of God's care for His people, His provisions for His people, even when they were disobedient. God was leading them. They passed through the sea. That's not hard to imagine this one. They were delivered supernaturally as Moses led them through the Red Sea as the Egyptians pursued after them. God intervened into this moment and saved them. God delivers them. There is a moment of deliverance. They were baptized into Moses. Now Paul's not saying at any point that they were dipped into the water in the name of Moses and brought back out. No, he's talking about being identified with Moses. That they followed his leadership. That they submitted to his authority. That they were all identified with him. That they ate spiritual food and they drank spiritual drink. Here Paul is paralleling communion for us by reminding them that God provided the man and the bread for them to eat every day, and He provided water for them out of the rock. What's supposed to start flowing through your mind as you read that is all the parallels to the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. That we're led by Jesus. That we've been supernaturally delivered by Jesus. We were removed from our sin by Jesus. That we've been baptized into Jesus. Literally by water. Figuratively by identification. And that Jesus is our bread of life. He is our living water. You're supposed to read through that as a New Testament believer and go, that's exactly like us. I've never seen those parallels. That's striking. This is me. So where's Paul going with this? Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul illustrates for them these Old Testament stories, these New Testament realities that in spite of everything that God had done for His people, in spite of all of the blessings and provisions that they had received, God was not well pleased with His chosen people. Because, as it seems, His pleasure is not derived merely by what He has accomplished for them, but by His people's obedience in light of what He has accomplished for them. In fact, in this story, in the book of Exodus, you would find that God only permitted two of the adults of that entire generation, Caleb and Joshua, to enter into the promised land. Not even Moses was permitted to go in. Why? Paul tells us, verse 6, Now these things took place as an example for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. Paul writes, it's an example for us. 
Because these people who've had a similar spiritual experience as you have, these people who have been delivered, these people who are being led, these people who are being provided for, are choosing and desiring evil. Thus, they are our examples. They are our lessons. That even if you've been delivered, even if you've been saved, even if you've been baptized, and you regularly participate in communion, an illusion that you're regularly connecting with the Father and holiness, you're regularly connecting with Him, even if all of those things are true, it will not make you immune to sin, or its effects, or His discipline. Paul illustrates that by giving four pertinent and extraordinarily strong examples. Not only to prove his point, but to confront the Corinthians with their own sin. He gives his first example in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. At first understanding, this doesn't seem so wrong. This doesn't seem so evil. In fact, it sounds an awful lot like a picnic. And yet the Hebrews amongst the Corinthians would have immediately recognized the picture. For when it says, as it is written, your Bible will footnote this for you, by the way. Footnotes are helpful in Bibles. Paul's reminding them of Exodus 32. He's quoting Exodus 32, verse 6. That when the Israelites gave themselves over to idolatry by first creating the golden calf, you'll remember the story, Moses goes up, meets with God, comes back down, and they've created a large golden calf by which they are now worshiping and playing. By the way, by cultural implications, playing probably involves gross sexual immorality. By gross, I mean a lot. God was not pleased because these people whom He delivered, whom He led, whom He provided for, whom He gave leadership towards, gave themselves over to the worship of a false idol. Now friends, I can't imagine there are too many of us who've created golden images of calves to worship. But that's just an example of idolatry. It is worth posing as someone who's been delivered, who's been led, who's been saved, what does idolatry look like in your life? It's a question we need to consider. And we will as we walk through the book of Joshua. You might take some time to read Exodus 32 this week. Paul pushes it further, verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Paul points them back to Numbers 25. When the Israelites, God's chosen people, whom God was leading, whom God delivered, whom God provided for, gave themselves over to sexual immorality. By the way, the Greek word for that is porneia. It will remind you of an English word, and I'm intending it to. God was not pleased. Why do we think we can sin with impunity? Why do we believe he doesn't know? Why do we think it's okay? 
For Numbers 25, if we want to believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as a result of sexual immorality, pornea, a plague fell among the people, and 23,000 people died that day because they gave themselves to it. You might call it a coincidence. The Bible doesn't. No, the Bible makes it clear that God was disciplining His people with a heavy discipline that they would learn the lesson. You might take some time to read Numbers 25 this week. It would not be a light and easy devotional time. But it is God's Word given for your reproof, for your correction, and to train you in righteousness. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Put Christ to the test. Paul looks back and sees Christ in these stories. It's Christ we put to the test, friends. As you step into this illustration, it's not doubt, it's not struggling. It's challenging the nature and the character of God. This points us to Numbers 21. I'll read it for you. It is a short account. Verse 4, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden. And the people became impatient on the way. It's an understatement. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. God's people, whom He delivered, whom He set free, whom He was providing for, said everything you're providing for is not good enough for me. I want more. I deserve more. They shook their fist at God. That's not doubt. That's not struggling. I have a whole theology. We can dig into this someday. You want to get mad and angry at God? He can take it. You want to stand in your attic or your closet and shake your fist? God, why is this happening in my life? He'll be with you. I promise you that. But it is an entirely different deal when you're not struggling, when you're not being overwhelmed, when you're not... to basically look at God and challenge Him on who He is. And His ability to provide for you. To say, what you're doing isn't enough for me. Verse 6, The Lord sent fiery serpents amongst His people. And they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord that He might take the serpents away from us, So Moses prayed for the people, and God removes the serpents. Paul gives us his last example in verse 10. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Pointing back to Numbers 16. Another fun passage for your quiet time this week. When Israel rebelled against the leaders that God had anointed, and they too died, By the way, all of these issues Paul addresses to the Corinthians throughout the letter. I could point you to 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 8. These are all issues in the Corinthian church 
that Paul is illustrating by the Old Testament that they could learn from, that they could take heed of, that they could see the example from. Verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. They were given to us so we learn from the example that God, who delivers us, who provides for us, who gives us everything we need, who's given us everything for life and godliness, that God doesn't just let us sin with impunity. You can't just accept salvation. I've been saved by Jesus Christ and then live like a free man, like you can do anything in the world you want. God notices. And there should be some strong calls in here for us that some of us need to get rid of some computers, some phones. Some of us need internet filters. That there's a time and a day where the church stands up and says, guys, we cannot sin with impunity as if it, it doesn't matter. That's why these illustrations are before us. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you're here on your own, if you think you're here on your own accord, by your own strength, by your own power, if you think it's you getting it done, and that you can sin with total impunity because you got you here, take heed. That's what the Scripture says. A good father disciplines his children. A good father disciplines his kids into a right path of correction. And a good father we have. He ends in an exhortation, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He's not talking about struggling. He's telling you, he's putting before you, you're going to be tempted. The temptations will be before you to give yourselves over into idolatry. The temptation will be before you to give yourselves over to sexual immorality. The temptation will be before you to look at God and shake your fist because you're in control and you deserve better. The temptation will be before you. But God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you will be able to endure it. Why? Because He is the way. He is the truth. He is the light. He is faithful. He will protect you. He will give you an escape. He will give you endurance. Watch the pronouns. He will. He will. He will. We are to take the examples of the Old Testament. We are to look at them, to study them, to go, man, God was leading these people, He was guiding these people, and they still fell flat on their face. I don't want to do that. I don't want that kind of discipline in my life. 
My family can't afford it. We're to learn and to watch. You cannot sin with impunity. You should know, to the Romans, Paul writes, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. We might have hope. We look at these examples that we might have hope. Hope that even in the discipline of the Father, He's taking care of us. Hope that even in the discipline of a Father who might well strike you down. The New Testament allows that possibility. But it'd be for your betterment. It'd be for His glory. So friends, we will start into the book of Joshua so that we might consider the examples We might consider the instruction that we might be taught, we might be reproved, we might be corrected, we might be trained in righteousness. Why? Because that's what God's Word does. And it doesn't return void. It does what it's accomplished to do. It sets out to fulfill its purpose and does what God wants it to. And what that means for us, us, all of us, As there's a whole lot of areas in our lives that God wants to say no to all of us. And if you've been coming to church here for a while and you haven't felt Jesus pushing back on the sin in your life, He wants you to pay attention. Because He will. He's going to tell you no. He's going to correct you. He wants to show you the air. He wants to train you up. He wants to give you endurance. He wants to give you hope. Friends, this is the picture of the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey that God had for His people. We want to believe in our mind, in our New Testament mind that the book of Joshua starts off with. And, and they walked across the river and all of a sudden there were all these empty free spaces and they could do whatever. And it was amazing. And they just walked into it. They just claimed it. Nothing happened. No, as we walk through Joshua, you're going to see war. You're going to see battles. You're going to see large amounts of casualties. It is not an easy process. And God didn't intend for it to be. But He calls us to leave Egypt and to enter into Canaan, to enter into the promised land. Looking forward to and praying for our time in the book of Joshua. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, Your Word is truth. And Your truth confronts us. Father, I pray this morning that we would trust in You. That we'd believe in You. That our hope would be in You. Father, Your Word assures us if we've believed in You, You'll deliver us. Your Word also assures us that a good father will discipline his children. Praise the Lord we have a good father.
Father, would you work in our lives through this series? Father, would you show us where we're wrong? Father, would you show us the places where we think we're in charge and we just sin freely as if it doesn't matter? Father, would you convict us of our sin? Would you grow us up as your people? Father, would you lead us into a land flowing with milk and honey? Father, we could walk in just sweet fellowship with your son. Father, I pray as we walk through this series that your son would be in so highlighted that we'd see the magnificence of his grace and the beauty of his empowerment to walk through all that you would put before us. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.